will never be bored when it comes to Paul Thorne. Whether it's his life story, his conversations, or his main gig, music, there's nothing run-of-the-mill about any of it. None of it is what you would call normal, but at the same time, everything about him has a wide appeal and relatability. There's the surface level of what seems like a carnival show, but pretty quickly it's obvious that deeper down, there's a profound love for humanity, a rare level of self-awareness, wit, and intelligence in everything he does. He manages to be the center of attention in almost every room he's in, but also completely open and approachable. I just always try to be myself, he once said. That ain't gonna make everyone happy. But if you make everybody happy, you must be kind of a boring person. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, welcoming you to Southern Songs and Stories and our episode on Paul Thorne. Southern Songs and Stories is produced in partnership with Grassroots Radio, WNCW, and Osiris Media, and is available wherever you get your podcast and at WNCW.org. One easy and very helpful way to spread awareness of the artists featured here, their music, and this series is to subscribe to this podcast and give it a good rating and a comment on the platforms where you listen to your podcasts. This is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. It was early March in Shelby, North Carolina, a day that was a little cooler than average, clear with a high in the low 50s. My friend Jeff Williams was in town, and we sat down with Paul Thorne for an interview that afternoon, ahead of his performance at the Don Gibson Theater. It was going to be the first of many shows we would see together this year, and little did we know that the disease called COVID-19, which was then mostly in countries like China and Italy, with only a handful of known cases in the United States, would shut down the state just a few weeks later. This was to be the last live show I would see for months and counting. But even without that sad fact, it would still have remained a highlight of the year. 
Paul Thorne spoke with us at length about how confronting fear is central to his character, about growing up in Tupelo, Mississippi and going to the Pentecostal church where his father preached, how he likes music that is simple but universal, his habit of scouring flea markets and yard sales, and much more. In this episode, you'll also hear from Angela Backstrom, music promoter and collector of vintage Western wear, and of course, lots of music from Paul and his band, like this song, I Don't Like Half the Folks I Love. Hey, Southern Songs and Stories with Paul Thorne at the Don Gibson Theater in Shelby, North Carolina in front of his show tonight. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to be on. Thank you for having me. How's it going? It's going great. Good. First off, I want to ask you about fear. It's something that I think, I bet a lot of people don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it, and they may do a lot of things to steer away from it. They may have to face fear every now and again, sooner or later. But I don't think that most people consciously deal with their fears 
in a purposeful way, but you seem just the opposite. You have confronted your fears in many ways throughout your life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I have uh, <clears throat> done some things that were <clears throat> filled with fear. Uh, just one of them that I could talk about was, you know, uh, being a former boxer. You know, I had, in all, I had close to 50 fights. And uh, every single time I walked to the ring, the main emotion I felt was fear. And, and, and <clears throat> any boxer that's honest, unless they're a sociopath, will tell you that fear is the dominant thing you're trying to control and when you go in the ring. It's, it, it just it zaps your energy. It overcomes you if you, if you let it, fear will. And, you'll, it'll, and it will actually freeze your abilities and you won't be, the, you, you know, you won't be able to fight as, as good as you actually can because fear has crippled you. And you've done other things too, like skydiving. Yep, I did uh, about 170 jumps, and uh, once again, every single time I jumped, I had fear, and I never jumped without being afraid. And uh, uh, some people got can get used to it, and it doesn't even bother them. But every time that door door opened, and I saw the reality of the sky, it was scary. Time it was scary, but I moved forward in front of, in spite of that. In both things, you know, I was scared to fight, but I fought. I was scared to jump out of a plane, but I did it too. You how, know? how about getting on stage? I don't have that fear, you know. I think maybe that's why I'm more successful at this than I was boxing. Because, you know, uh, in, when I'm on stage, I have the ability to relax. I believe in my abilities, and I've, I've done it enough. I, 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 can sort of, I can sort of work under any circumstances, and I've got a skill set that I believe in, and I didn't have that. I had a skill set when I was boxing, but I didn't have that ultra confidence that it takes to be really great. But don't you think, too, you should have just a little twinge of, there should be some butterflies yeah. when you get out there. Oh, yeah, there's a little bit, but there's a little bit of butterflies and fear is two different things, you know. You know, fear, fear can cripple you. And most, a lot of people don't achieve their goals in life because of they're paralyzed by fear. They won't even start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, related to that, uh, struggle seems kind of central to your makeup in a way. You've talked about your admiration for Marvin Hagler and who, how he struggled for so long to get his shot, to get his due, and eventually got his recognition that he deserved. And the music world and creative endeavor, endeavors in general are kind of full of these massive challenges. And it is now just as hard today maybe even harder than it was to ever uh, ever was to make a living in the arts yeah. but there's no shortage of it and there's more of it and there's people leaving lucrative and safe jobs to get into music and and creative fields so why do you think so many many people are doing this uh well you mean trying to be in the music business yeah well, they they obviously love it, or you know maybe they love it, or maybe they uh, have a talent and they want to be famous. There's all kind of different things. Um, for me, uh, you know, I was I'm dyslexic, and when I was growing up, I had to face a lot of fear just going to school because I couldn't keep up with the other students, and they didn't know what dyslexia was back then, so they just thought I wasn't trying. But there was a lot of kids like me that had dyslexia. And, that were lost at school and then you get a bad report card and then you go home and you get whipped with a belt because you made bad grades and I, and it was that that was just my life you know and uh and uh but 
being uh, di dyslexic, I also had an advantage. I was very artistic and creative. So I took that, which is one of the hallmarks of being dyslexic, is creativity, and I made a life out of it. Hmm. That's neat. Yeah. <laughs> when I was singing that song, I looked at the lady in the eyes, and she winked at me, and I winked back. And she's sitting right there. It was a nice wake moment, wasn't it? It was. I'll never forget that. Uh, what's your name, ma'am? What's that? Grace? Amazing Grace. I know you've heard that a million times, but I had to say that. But anyway, let me ask you something, Grace. Uh, let me ask you something. When you was a little girl, who was somebody in your life that was a great influence? Name just one person. Who? Your uncle? Okay. What did he do? He played the banjo? What was his name? Who? Earl Scruggs. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's obvious. I used to go on the elevator with Earl Scruggs one night, and, and I didn't, I couldn't think of anything to say. I was so in awe. Yeah. Our conversation, we were doing a festival together, and our conversation was, I couldn't think of anything to say, and I said, you think anybody's gonna show up tonight? And he's, he just, he didn't look at me, he said, I hope so. That's my moment with those girls. Well, let me tell you what. Almost, my father was a Pentecostal preacher, and my uncle was a pimp. And they were both great influences to me. So tonight, I'm going to dedicate this song to my father, my uncle, and Earl. Paul's 2010 album, Pimps and Preachers, is also his handle on Twitter. It refers to his upbringing as a Pentecostal preacher's son and a pimp's nephew, as you heard him describe there at his live show. He knows both worlds well, and to him, I imagine that he might think of them not as much as diametrically opposed as they are two sides of the same coin. It is a currency that he spends quite often. Paul Thorne has made a name for himself by not only writing good songs and a number of fantastic songs, not only by being a solid and consistent performer with a steady output of studio and live releases since his 1997 debut. Those factors would still add up to a solid career, but I don't think that they would have nearly the impact they have had without the larger-than-life personality of Paul himself. Paul Thorne is an open book, possessing a magnetism and energy that few artists can boast. He's not even boasting about it, which is another plus. He is colorful and quotable, scratching the surface of stereotypes to reveal something that is, while often over the top, also always pointing towards truths about human nature and our shared experience. Coming up, a conversation with music industry promoter Angela Backstrom and longtime Paul Thorne fan about how his outsized personality is such a big part of his success after this break. Past, Present, Future Live, a new podcast from Osiris Media. I'm RJB. We created Past, Present, Future Live to help us understand the artists behind the music and art that we love. 
the story of an artist's musical journey told in four parts. From the early days... Rubber Soul. Led Zeppelin Three, The Alley Cat by Bent Fabric. Nowhere Man. My brother had a band and like girls would come over. Da-da-dee, da-da-da. I was like, what? The Meters. The Kingston Trio. Bands that have the badass drummers. Man, that's the coolest thing ever. Cream and The Who. The Beatles became mine. Black Sabbath and Leonard Cohen. My parents could never possibly understand them. To personal and professional breakthroughs. I didn't know how to make a good distorted guitar sound. Hey man, you guys want to come in and like check out Soundcheck? It was kind of like a middle finger to the cooler than now grunge movement. I was like, hey man, we just got the opportunity of a lifetime. Starting at the knitting factory, playing for like 50 people, not even. And we just felt like, you know what, let's start our own club. To what's pushing them toward the future. Things are changing, you know. It makes sense for me to like just be me now. Sometimes you hear stuff, it really sounds so good. You like want to bite into it. 10 years ago, it was like, what the hell is this? I want to create something every day. That is the thing that gives me a reason to keep waking up. Each episode closes with an exclusive live performance from our guest, inspiring us to discover their catalog through a deeper and more personal connection. I'm really excited to be bringing you these interviews every week. Our first episode featuring Eric Krasno will be released on Tuesday, June 2nd. Subscribe now via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sutter. Hello, Angela. Hello. Angela Backstrom. Hey, Jerry. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Thanks yeah. for taking my call. Hey, no worries. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we start talking about Paul? Sure. Um, my name is Angela Backstrom. Um, I work in radio, so I'm a radio plugger for many different bands. And originally, when I first moved to the States, I had a radio show uh, at FHB in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And that's also where I discovered Paul and his music. That's great, Angela. I have to say, too, you have the best presentation, the uh, the snappiest sort of dress, you know, looking at your Instagram and photos. Uh, you got <laughs> good taste. <laughs> awesome. I actually run a vintage Western Wear page. I think we're up to about 8,000 now um, of Western Wear enthusiasts. It's kind of funny. And um, I collect vintage Western Wear, mostly stuff from the, like, 40s and 50s. Well, that is terrific. Angela, you told me about Paul Thorne that something very primal happens at his shows. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So uh, Paul deeply connects with his audience. Whenever I've seen him play, he he really works the room like no one else I've ever seen. Uh, the first show I ever caught him at was in Indianapolis. It's back early when I moved to the States. And again, he was working the crowd into a frenzy and... As he finishes up the show, he makes his way back to the merch desk and he dances with every woman in the room. <laughs> and honestly, I've never seen a line so long for any show to buy merch. He's awesome. You know, for many artists, we know them almost exclusively for their music. And we may find out something about their personality along the way. But for Paul Thorne, I would say that his magnetism, that outsized personality, is baked into everything that he does. How do you see his personality as a factor in his success? 
every time I actually do go to St. Paul, it's kind of like being a church. Um, he feels like he's the minister and the crowd is an absolute unholy mess. And his band is always top notch as well. Like it's the presentation is amazing. Last year, I got to catch him again at Mile Zero Fest, which is this festival, which is out in Key West. And he played a show. I never really stay up for the late shows. His show started at one. It went till like 2.30 in the morning. And it was obviously hot and humid in Key West. And absolutely, Paul just took the whole crowd to church. He was wearing a lay around his neck. And uh, it was just like a crowd of saints and sinners. <laughs> but, you know, we also saw him around um, uh, the island the whole time. And he's just cool and collected. You know, I heard that he was a boxer when he was coming up. And um, he's still got that physique. He's just, and he's just got that intense gaze. There's like... Nobody else, you know, when they play a show, it's just so much in the zone. Do you care to go into your relationship with your father? He was a preacher. My daddy uh, still is a preacher. He he retired. He's 80 years old now, but... He still he doesn't pastor church, but he'll still go, he'll he'll still go and you know do a little preachers here that preach here and there on the weekend and stuff. But he still doesn't have the physical energy like <laughs> he used to, and uh, it's a very uh, preaching's a very physical sport. It's yeah. worse than boxing. Well, staying. <laughs> well, to go on just a little bit more about church, you know, the the function of the church and and what it gives people. And, uh, you know, growing up in a Pentecostal uh, church and seeing both, you know, black churches, white churches, yeah. uh, uh, seeing that energy level in those in those places. What what can you say about that? What what does that teach you or what is that giving you? Everything I did growing up in church, going to the black churches, going to the white churches, the, absorbing the music at both. They had different styles of music. But the, the main thing I took away from that that's propelled me in my life to have a career is um, I felt I love and enjoy fellowshipping with people. And when I go to the show and I do my show, when the show's over, I don't leave. I don't just walk off the stage and leave. I go out into the front like my dad used to do in the foyer of the church. I stand there and I shake every hand and I take a picture with whoever wants to get a picture and I stand there till every single person's gone. And I try to have a moment with each fan, uh, you know, and, and uh, that to me is how you, in today's world, uh, that's an effective way to build an audience. And it's just a, it's just a good way to live life, period. Don't mail it in. Don't don't shake their hands because you want something. Just do it because you care for them and you want them to know that you appreciate them, you know. That's good. Mm-hmm. Mississippi. Talking about Mississippi and the South. And what do you see out of the South or, you know, specifically where you came from in Mississippi and your music? It seems like your whole, all, all of your music is just steeped in Southern culture. Um, and do you, on the flip side of that, do you have any comment on an impact that you might think your music has had on the culture or people like if people also were from outside the south they never visited mississippi they never really knew anything except they heard their music what would they be picking up on in my music Mm -hmm. well uh i try to make my music where it's not uh where it's it's very broad and universal you know even if you're not from mississippi the content of my songs you can get anybody can get it it's real simple stuff you know i like my songs to be like reading a dick and jane book i want you 
I want you to understand, I want even the person that's maybe the lowest mental capacity can st- can understand it. That's, I like to make it real simple. Like, you know, I'm, I don't, my music's not like Hank Williams' music, but that's what I liked about his music. It was just so simple. The songs were so simple and so powerful, you know. You know, uh, um, your cheating heart, you know. It's just, it just tells a real universal, broad story. Uh, it could be sang in Tupelo or it could be sang in Chicago, Illinois, mm-hmm. and the listener would still get them tears in the eyes. You, you have a lot of characters that are really pretty rich in your songs, and uh, you know what else that has come from your experience from growing up or from from living in the South might be in there that we could pick up on. Well, my dad's you know the preacher, and part of his job other than preaching was he had, when he's up on the pulpit, he's also entertaining, and you know he would tell little funny jokes between songs, and he was a great storyteller. And my uncle, his brother, was an actual pimp. And so when I was a kid, I, I was hung, I hung around and run around with him some too, and I saw him pimping, man. I saw the whole thing. I, I never was a pimp myself, but I know how to do it if I have to. And I'm just not that, I'm just not that cold-blooded, man. You know, I'm just, I don't, I don't use people up. I don't do that. Thanksgiving must have been really interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my dad and my uncle. Uh, uh, the main difference between my dad and my uncle was uh, my dad charges 10 percent of your income. And my uncle charges 100%. Because he has a smaller congregation, you know. I saw the Russell pulled up in the yard. Found a statue of Jesus that was eight feet tall. He held out his arms and he seemed all alone. Driveway, he looks down the street. Long hair and sandals made of rebar and concrete. I painted him white with a long purple robe. He's the rock of ages on a gravel road. He's an 800 pound Jesus, standing taller than a tree. He's an 800 pound Jesus, a bigger man than. Losing my job was the end of the world Till my best pal ran off with my best girl I felt suicidal with no real friends So I walked outside with a rope in my hand Out by the statue there's a big old tree So I stood on his shoulders and I counted to three I had every intention of buying the farm But when I jumped He's an 800 pound Jesus Standing taller than a tree He's an 800 pound Jesus A bigger man than you or me A bit of 800 pound Jesus from Paul's most recent record, Hammer and Nail Live which wasn't recorded where Angela Backstrom saw him at Mile Zero Fest, but probably wasn't incredibly far away from there, being that it was taken from his appearance on a Kayamo cruise in the Caribbean. 
that live release replays his debut album, Hammer and Nail, with the addition of one song. 800 Pound Jesus was covered by Sawyer Brown, who joined a number of high-profile country artists who have done the same with tunes from Paul's catalog. Billy Ray Cyrus, Toby Keith, Tanya Tucker, Ronnie Millsap, Joe Diffie, and artists from other genres like Jerry Jeff Walker, Samantha Fish, and Balsam Range. He dips into other artists' material himself at times, and played Ray Wiley Hubbard's Snake Farm and Jackson 5's I Want You Back that night in Shelby, for example. He also co-writes songs, and my friend Jeff asked him about one in particular. I'm a big fan of Wade Bowen and Randy Rogers, and um, the first time I heard Mood Ring was uh, Wade Bowen's version of it. Mm -hmm. Um, How did that song come about? Uh, Well, how it got written? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, well, I'll tell you uh, how it got written. I was... uh, I was over in France at a songwriter retreat where different songwriters would, would meet and write songs for two weeks together. And I, I wrote that song with one, uh, with one of the Isley Brothers. You know that group, the Isley Brothers, like 70s superstars? Well, I, I, we were just sitting, I had the idea for the song and I just, I just started plunking around on my guitar and we were over in France. Uh, uh, we drank a little wine and wrote Mood Ring. I wrote that with one of the, well, there's actually three writers on it. It was me, that guy from the Isley Brothers, and there was a girl, and I can't remember her name right off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I put that out on my f- second album, Mood Ring, and, you know, it just sat there, and, you know, I did, did what it did, and then uh, uh, I met ba- Wade Bowen. We did some shows together, and he, and he really liked that song, and he recorded it, and I, I'm fairly sure that that song broke him in Texas. I'm fairly certain of that. I mean, it was yeah. definitely a regional, you know, hit. Yeah, well, he in in, te- in Texas, he is one of the top artists. Yeah, he is. And Texas is its own thing. It's it's like its own universe. In it a lot is, of ways. man. It is. It's crazy, man. There's people that you. There's people you that couldn't come to the Don Gibson and and, and draw 20 people, but they draw 10,000 people in Texas. It really is like that. It's a whole different world, man. When I was in elementary school, they had something called a mood ring. They're supposed to change colors according to your mood. I always thought if them things really worked, I could put one on my wife's finger and I would know whether to move in or back off. I know nothing about this woman Everything I do is wrong Sometimes it's hard to fathom Just what page she's on I found a pretty little mood ring At the local five and down It's gonna solve all my problems For a dollar ninety-nine If it turns black I should turn back If it turns red She liked what I said 
Thank you very much. That's Mood Ring from Paul Thorne's So Far So Good Live, documenting his performance in Birmingham, Alabama, on another March night, back in 2005. Paul Thorne didn't play any songs from his next record for us at the Don Gibson Theater, but as he told us, that's something he never does anymore before an album is released. Because people can easily record his live performances, new songs would get out in the world and lessen their impact. They wouldn't be new anymore when everyone could get a hold of the album. His 10th studio album will be Paul's first record of new material in six years, and he worked with Grammy-winning producer Matt Ross Spang on the project. It will probably be named Two Tears of Joy, taken from one of its 12 songs that Paul described as having a completely different vibe to them than his work so far. Expect a more acoustic-leaning album from Paul Thorne in coming months, 
not in July as he had expected when we recorded the interview, but likely next January when he might be able to tour again and play them live. It's almost summer now at the time of this episode's release, and no summer soundtrack would be complete without one of Paul Thorne's signature songs. This is Mission Temple Fireworks Stand. for listening, and I hope you might invite someone you know to drop in here at Southern Songs and Stories as well. You can subscribe to the series on your podcast platform of choice, and it always helps when you give it a good rating and a review. Great ratings and reviews especially will make Southern Songs and Stories and the artists it profiles more visible to more people just like you. Also, it helps to spread awareness and make more people connected when you like and follow the show on our social media. You can find us on the Facebook page, Southern Songs and Stories, on Twitter, at South Scenes, and on Instagram, at South Stories. Feel free to drop me an email at southernsongsandstories at gmail.com or joek at wncw.org. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of both Public Radio WNCW and Osiris Media, with all of the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Angela Backstrom for being on the show. You can find out about her at angelabackstrompromotions.com. And thanks also to Jeff Williams for joining in. Our theme songs are by Joshua Ming. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. Sometimes when we're on a really long drive, I'll bring my art pencils. I like to draw, and I'll do that and sit back there in the back and just...
create some drawings. Art's my hobby, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and and I when I'm traveling around, I I love to when I get a chance. I like to go to flea markets, markets and yard yard sales if I can. I'm a big junker, man. <laughs> I, I'm a you know that show American Pickers. I do that. I don't, but I don't do it to, I'm, as a business. I just like finding cool stuff because I collect stuff. And, I, and I've got a, a 30 by 30 shed at my house. And every, inside that shed, wall to wall, ceiling to ceiling, is things I've collected all my life. So you, you probably spend a lot of time out there when you're home. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I'll go out there and I've got things like an old, I've got an old, um, uh, um, what do they call it? Console record player. The, the kind oh, of looks the like big, a piece of furniture. Yeah, I've got one of those. 500 pounds. I got one of those, and I play old records, and you know, go out there and uh, just the, the the last thing I found at a yard sale, uh, actually last week. You remember the show, the Six Million Dollar Man? Oh, I loved it. There was I had one, the Six Million Dollar Man when I was a kid. Well, in my shed, first of all, I have a, I have a Six Million Dollar Man pinball machine in my shed. I, I had the, one there. the figure. You could look through his eye. Yeah, yeah. You could and take his arm off. Yeah. You could see the bionics and everything. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but there was one episode of Six Million Dollar Man where he fought Bigfoot. Do you remember that? Yeah. Ooh, I don't know if I remember yeah, that. I just saw that. The other yeah, he, he, uh, there's one thing, there's <laughs> one episode where, where you know, uh, Six Million Dollar Man's walking through the woods, minding his own business, and all of a sudden Bigfoot comes up and wants to fight. And Bigfoot, under the costume, is actually Andre the Giant. And so, anyway. I went to a yard sale the other day, and it was almost like the clouds of heaven opened up <laughs> because I walked right up on a mint condition Andre the Giant Bigfoot doll. Wow. I got it. I got it. Man, yeah, I got oh it. Man, and oh he's, man. Got a, he's, got a, uh, he's got a plate on his chest right here, uh, on his chest right here, and below it is a little button. And so when Six Million Dollar Man hits him in the stomach, his chest plate blows off, and you can see all the iron, all the bionic wires and stuff because it's a bionic Bigfoot. <laughs> of course. Yeah, which is the hardest one to fight. Uh, I'm going to have to – I'm sure this is on the Internet somewhere. I'm going to have to go yeah. back and look at that. I, you, know where the, you know where he is right now? He's sitting on the dresser in my hotel room with his arms stretched out in case somebody comes in and scare him off. <laughs> That's right. 